Amen. Amen. Uh, let me just echo what's already been said about the singing. It's been a wonderful morning of singing, and I appreciate the fact that we get to hear our voices lifted up in song. It's been a wonderful time for me to be here, and my wife, Sherry, to get to be here with y'all and to get to fellowship with your dear pastor. I have uh, always uh, appreciated him and his humble attitude about uh, about being a pastor, about the ministry. And, and any time a preacher gets lifted up in pride, he's bound for a fall. And, uh, uh, you know, there's enough pitfalls anyway. <laughs> And, and that's a self-inflicted wound. Let me just tell you: if you become, if you're a preacher or a pastor that becomes lifted up in pride, in general, if you're a congregation member that becomes lifted up with pride, pride truly does go before destruction. But it is indeed a, a pleasure to be here and to be with him. And uh, it's great to see some of my church members here. Uh, uh, Sister Aiden, glad she and Brother Ben are able to come up here and attend with y'all. Uh, we're, uh, we, we love them dearly and glad to have them. Glad to have my good friend, Judge Bill Cole. Judge Cole serves on the court with me uh, down in Montgomery but lives up here. And uh, certainly glad to have each and every one here that's visiting this morning. Uh, pray for me. I've had some conflicting thoughts, as some of you preacher brethren understand that, that uh, not really always sure what I should be preaching, but we trust that whatever uh, comes out today, the Lord will bless uh, because I certainly need that. You would turn to the 8th chapter of Romans. We're going to read a very familiar passage in the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is, what does that mean? Because there's quite a lot of talk in the world about that particular passage that I believe, and as Brother Phillips said, this is not meant to be uh, ugly or, or harsh against anyone else. I just, I just believe that it's taught wrong in the world. Uh, things that people uh, uh, believe about this verse, I believe, ultimately uh, goes contrary to what Scripture teaches about what's under consideration here. And I guess the real question is this, is when it says all things in this verse, is that talking about all things without exception, or is it talking about all things under consideration? All things under consideration. One of the primary rules of biblical interpretation is context means everything. In fact, I've heard Elder Sonny Pyle say many times that a text out of context is usually just a pretext yeah. <laughs> uh, to prove something else, and uh, and so one of the one of the things I want to do this morning, if the Lord will be our helper, is let's talk. I want to talk about first about what it doesn't mean. And you may say, well, preacher, why does it matter? What's the big deal? Some because I grew up believing uh, pretty much like the world believes that this was talking about every single thing that happens out there. God is somehow working it uh, to our good. And, uh, and 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 let me just go ahead and say this. I took some comfort in that. There is a degree of comfort in believing that God is in control of everything. But the problem with that is, and God is in control of everything, but, but the problem with believing uh, the way it's taught in the world is that comes very, very close, if not all the way into the camp of absolutism. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah. of course, by absolutism, I'm talking about the absolute predestination of all things, which 
which destroyed churches in our area. It almost destroyed the church that I pastor. And it is not what's being taught in the Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, let's, let's, talk, let's take what it doesn't mean. It does not mean all things without exception. The most widespread interpretation of this Scripture is this. Every single tragedy, every wicked deed that men do to you or someone else, and even your own wicked sins work together for your ultimate good. Okay? Now, now that's just contrary to Scripture, as we'll see in a moment. But, but, but have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this? The world kind of gets it backward. <laughs> kind of gets it backward. Right. Because, because what happens is, is that most people that believe that, they believe that ultimately your eternal destination and the things heavenly are up to you, but that all things earthly are up to God. Yeah. And we believe pretty much the opposite. We believe that our heavenly destination is in the hands of God. Yeah. And many, if not most, most things that happen here are due to our own actions right. or our own disobedience. You know, I was a prosecutor, as many of you know, for many, many years. And uh, there were many times we'd stand up before the bench, we'd have worked out a plea agreement on somebody that committed a robbery or some other crime, and they were going to prison for, for 20 years sometimes. I remember one in particular, about a 20-year sentence that he was facing. And when asked if he had anything to say before he was sentenced, he said this. He said, well, Judge, I know I'm here for a reason, and, and, and God's got a plan for me. And I didn't want to say anything. Judge Cohen knows that would have messed up the plea. <laughs> I didn't want to object at that point. But 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 what I found, I, my, my assistant DA found this online, and I love this. I love this phrase. I printed it out. It was on a church sign, and uh, and I had it posted in my office. It says this. It says, "All things happen for a reason." I believe that all things happen for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and made a bad decision. That's, right. Amen. That's, right. That's sometimes yeah. the problem. Ninety percent of my problems are because I made a bad decision, yeah. you see. Yeah. Now, I don't want to get off into suffering and trouble and trials and all that. I mean, I realize there are some things that happen to you that are because we live in a sin-cursed world. There are some things that happen to you and I that are because of our own bad decisions. There are some things that are the chastening hand of God. Yeah. I heard Elder Sonny Piles put it this way one time. Uh, you know, there are times when the Lord has brought chastening upon the nation of Israel, for example, and he's brought chastening into yours in my life. And let me, let me just say this, too, before we go any further. I had somebody tell me this one time. He said, Preacher, I just don't know what it is I've done that's caused the Lord to put all this on me. Well, let me tell you this. There is chastening. There is chastening. But if you can't figure out what you've done that's got this trouble or trial upon you is probably not the chastening hand of God. Because think about it as parents. I never just went into the other room and started beating my kids and not tell them why. They knew exactly why they were having, uh, they were being punished. They knew. I sat them down and they told them, and God's a better daddy than I ever would hope to be. And God does not chasten us without telling us why. If you have, every time I've been chastened, Every time I've found myself under the chastening hand of God, I have known exactly why. God, if you got just enough, just a small degree of spiritual uh, sense of, uh, in seeking what the Lord's doing, you'll know. God will tell you why you're being chastened. You will know. If you can't figure it out, it's probably just the result of living in a sin-first world, you see. I didn't mean to preach on that this morning, so let me move on to this. But here's, here's, here's what I heard Elder Sonny Pyle say one time about the problem with absolutism. He said, the absoluter believes that God deals with everybody all of the time the way he dealt with some of the people some of the time. 
in the Scripture. You think about that. It makes sense, doesn't it? There were times God purposed to do things in this world, and he did it. But most of the things that happen to us are not the result of God reaching down and stirring up a big old ball of cancer and casting it down into you, or a big old ball of diabetes and casting it down into you, or, or going down into the gulf and swirling up a hurricane. And sending. Most of those things occur as a result of the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me go back to what I was saying. It does not mean all things without exception. And... And when the world has got one interpretation that's almost universally subscribed to, you better be careful. Yeah. What did Moses say over in Deuteronomy chapter 23? He said, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. I'm not saying the crowd is always wrong, but 99.99% of the time they're wrong. <laughs> so you young folks remember that. When you're going along with the crowd, and you look around and everybody's on the same page, you better stop and reevaluate your actions. And you see, what happens with Romans 8, 28, like it happens with several other scriptures in the, in the Word of God, like John three sixteen comes to mind and some others, uh, is, you know, some of you know about fonts. Font size is the size of the print on the paper, okay? It's the size of the print. I don't know what font size this is in my Bible. I usually, most of the things I write or type are font size 12, which is a certain size. And it's getting bigger, by the way, the older I get. I have to get it a little bit bigger where I can see it better. But what happens is with a verse like this, it's as if that font size of Romans 8.28, where the rest of them might be 12, all of a sudden it jumps up to 64. Yeah. And, and it blots out, it, 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 it overshadows everything else in that chapter. You cannot take Scripture out of context. You see, all things without exception will not fit with the context of where this verse is or in the greater context of the Scripture. Let's look at what it says here. It says, all things work together. Work together. That Greek word there, which we don't have to go to, but I, I do it just because sometimes doing a word study is good. It's the Greek word sunergo. And it comes from the, uh, the words that mean to be a fellow worker or to cooperate, to help in work or to be a partner in labor. All right. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. Are God and Satan partners in labor? No. Are they co-workers? No. Are they working together? You know, I read of a place over in Matthew chapter 16 where, uh, where uh, uh, when, when Peter speaks up about Jesus not going to the cross, he looks at him and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, we're told in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 that he's the adversary. That means he's not on the same page. He is contrary to them. You know, if you go back sometime to the third chapter of Zechariah, you'll see that Joshua the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was standing at his right hand to cooperate with him and help him out in some way. No, to resist him, to resist him. Satan is not cooperating with God. Well, let me ask you another question. What about sin? Does sin work together with God? Well, Habakkuk tells us that Talking of God, he says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and catch not look upon sin. I mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't see what's going on, but it means that it cannot come into his presence. Sin is hateful to God. If you, want to, you want to know how bad God hates sin. All you got to do is look at the cross. That's right. All you got to do is look at the cross. I'm telling you, child of God, I love you dearly. But if somebody told me that one of my sons had to die for you because of something you did and because it would, that's the only way to satisfy uh, justice, I would be tempted, even as a judge, to say, you know what, we're going to look, overlook that this time. 
We're not gonna, we're just gonna let that pass. We're gonna just let that, we're gonna let that little sin, that little error pass by. God, God's own son hung on the cross and he did not give him any reprieve. Because he could not, because he hates sin so badly, had he given him a reprieve, had Christ come down from the cross, then you and I would have had no hope. There would be no hope for his children whatsoever. Because God hates sin so much, it had to be paid for, you see. We're also told that God is not the author of confusion. I don't know about you, but the most confused I've ever been in my life is when I've been in the throes of sin. That'll bring confusion. Sin doesn't bring clarity. It brings confusion. God is not the author of confusion. Well, let me ask you another question. Does the flesh work together with the spirit? I read over in the book of Galatians that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other. And I want to just say this. when, Whenever my wife and I, which has rarely happened, but whenever we've had some disagreement, and it's even rarer that I'm wrong, I shouldn't be saying that here. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't even be saying things like that in the pulpit. Uh, seriously, uh, when she looks at me and says, you sure are being contrary today, that's not a compliment. <laughs> She's not saying, oh, boy, I love your contrariness. You know, I love how contrary you've been all day today. That's not, that does not promote marital harmony. Let me just tell you, because being contrary is not working together. It's being a working opposite. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to ask you this question. Does righteousness work together in close fellowship with unrighteousness? Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, I believe that's right. Yes. He says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and, and they that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth... Uh, live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, which rose again. Wherefore, henceforth we know no man after the flesh. And what he's telling us there, and I believe I've got the wrong Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 6. I'm in chapter 5 there. I knew that one right. Chapter 5, verse 14. Here we go. Appreciate these good brothers that keep me straight. Chapter five, chapter six, and verse fourteen says, "Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers." Yeah. Now listen: for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? I ask you the question: Does righteousness have fellowship with unrighteousness? The answer is clear: It does not. It does not. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and get together, working together with the unrighteous. Is that what it says? No. Be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. You see... Righteousness does not work together with with unrighteousness. Sin does not work together with, with, with God. The flesh does not work together with the Spirit. It cannot mean that all that good works together with evil, you see. And by the way, 
the whole context of Scripture demands a totally different interpretation. Everywhere you look in the Scripture, where there's a verse about evil and good, they're always juxtaposed against one another. You go back to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 12, and talking about the, uh, the, the virtuous woman said she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, if evil and good work together, it should have said she'll do him good and evil and it'll all work out. <laughs> That's not the way it works, is it? Hate the evil, Amos said, and love the good. But really, if true, if Romans 8 and 28 is the way they say it is, then you ought to love the evil too, because it's going to work out for you good. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. But Isaiah just got it wrong there, because evil really works out for the good, right? <laughs> no, that's not what it says. Everywhere you look in Scripture, the Scripture demands a different interpretation of Romans 8 28. And by the way, let me leave you with one more before we move into what it does mean. Did you know there are some things that haven't, quote, come into the mind of God? Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. It doesn't mean he didn't understand or know through his omniscience that it would happen. But back over in Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse 5, we're told they have built also the high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal. Let me just stop there and tell you what's happening in that day is not a pretty picture. They were sacrificing their children on the altar of Baal. They were, they were burning them alive in that belly of that beast, so to speak, that, that big fat uh, idol that they set up there, and they would beat the drums so loudly so they couldn't hear the cries of the babies as they were being sacrificed, and even God's children were doing this. Oh, my goodness, beloved. Let me just say this. This is not on my topic either, but we say, well, that couldn't happen today. Have we not been sacrificing babies on the altar of choice for some 50 years? And in some states, still, it's still going on. Don't think that's an old thing that could never happen again. It's been happening, child of God. It's been happening. But notice what he then says. He says, They've built up the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Now, if Romans 8.28 means what the world says that it means, then the, the, the tag to that verse should have been, but it's going to all work out for the good in the end. Beloved, that's not what Romans 8.28 means. So, so let's talk about what it does mean. What does it mean? Because... You say, preacher, why are you so why are you so adamant about that? Why are you talking about this even? What's the big deal? You know, either way, ultimately we go to heaven. Think, well, I'll tell you what the big deal is. It is, you know, what did Jesus say about the truth? He didn't say the truth will get you to heaven. He didn't say you got to believe the truth in order to go to heaven. He said you'll know the truth, and what will the truth do? The truth will make you free. It will make you free here and now. You know, we as primitive Baptists believe that there's two different types of salvation called in the Scripture. There's eternal salvation solely and wholly in the hands of God. But there's a salvation here in time that's in large part up to us. Peter said, save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation. And there's a, the way we do that primarily is by learning and knowing the truth. And I want to tell you, beloved, there is a beautiful, beautiful truth here that we are missing if we don't understand what the all things are. Okay, so what does it mean? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And most people stop there. Most preachers at funerals stop there. I've been to many funerals where that was 
Well, that was preached and that was all that was said. But beloved, praise God, it does not stop there. It does not stop there. Because the next verse, 29, says for. Remember, when for is there, that means it's pointing you back to what's just been said. So we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who they call according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, whom He called them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And, and then he says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Well, see, what he's telling us here is, listen, these things that are afflicting you, because you've got to understand the context. Think about where we are here. Why is Paul taking them to this particular set of truths at this particular time in the message? Well, I mean, I understand he was inspired by God to write this, but God inspired him to write it in a certain way that it would be the most beneficial to us. So let's think about what he's been talking about. Why is it important? He said, why is it important, preacher, to understand this in the proper way? Well, first of all, understand that he's not talking about all things that happen out here without exception. The things under consideration are our eternal redemption. The things that pertain to our eternal salvation. Yeah. People talk about the Roman road to salvation. This is it. <laughs> this is it right here. And it doesn't involve man except as a recipient. It says, whom he did foreknow. That's the wondrous, sweet doctrine of election. He tells us over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, he said, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And notice it's not what he foreknew. It's whom he foreknew. I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. We're told back in Psalm chapter 14 that the Lord looked down upon, you know, one of the misapplications of election, the misunderstandings of the doctrine of election, is that election means God looked down in time and saw what you would do and therefore chose you based on what you would do. I am so thankful it's not that way. Because I'll tell you, I know what I do every day. And I read about, that's the half truth, because I read about in Psalm 14 that the Lord did look down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did seek him, there were any that did good. And you know what he said? They've all gone out of the way. You know, if it was up to what we would do, there'd be nobody in heaven. <laughs> I'm so thankful it's not up to what we do. And besides, this is not a what, it's a whom. It's a personal pronoun. And I don't remember much about English, but I remember there's a difference in a personal and an, uh, in an impersonal pronoun. Whom? Uh, people whom he did foreknow. And that's another problem with the absolute, by the way. Anytime you get, if you ever get anything but people into predestination, you got problems. you got problems. He didn't predestinate events and things. He predestinated people, you see, to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, whom he did foreknow, who he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Don't let anybody tell you we believe in the in the in the chosen few. We believe in a multitude that no man can number. In fact, primitive Baptists are the most inclusive of all the religions out there under the name of Christianity because we believe that even those in the darkest reaches of Africa, those in the planet that have never heard the word of God, that God has a people among them as well, and they will be with him one day. That doesn't forgive us the, the, the duty and the desire that we ought to have to go preach to them. We ought to be evangelistic in our nature, in our desires. We ought to want to preach. I want them to hear this good news. But praise God, it's not about them checking off the boxes. You see, the gospel is not about the sinner. 
Most of the gospel in the world today focuses upon the sinner and what the sinner must do and how the sinner must respond and these sorts of things. Praise God, the true gospel is about the Savior and what he did to save his people from their sins. Maybe we'll preach about that this afternoon, but praise God, I know you believe this, that the Lord saves his people from their sins, and it is not a small number. It's not just a, you know us four and no more. It's people in every kindred and nation and tongue and people. A multitude that no man can number. And then notice this. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. That's the new birth right there, child of God. That's the calling that is solely of God. That's the calling that we read about in John chapter 5 and verse 25, where it says, Verily, where Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, the hour is coming, and now is, when they which are dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. You know, I can preach the words of Jesus. I can't speak in the voice of Jesus. I can't speak in his voice. I can cut you to the heart. Stephen did that. But I can't prick you in the heart. Only the Holy Ghost can do that. But you know, the beauty of that is, is that we don't have to make any exceptions for anybody who's unable to hear, who's unable to process thoughts, the babes in the womb. See, I believe that voice of the Son of God can reach into the very womb of that mother who is about to have her child aborted before that portion or scalpel gets there and can cause that one to leap with joy. He did it, didn't he? John the Baptist? Go read the first chapter of Luke sometimes. We're told he leaped for joy in his mother's womb. I read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the... It's not the it's not the tree. The tree bears the fruit. You see, you don't go to an apple tree and 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 look at the fruit and say, "Well, I'm glad you bore this tree." <laughs> the tree bore the fruit. You see, you got to have the spirit to have the joy to have the fruit. And what happens there is that the voice of the Son of God can speak to the one that cannot even process thoughts and cause that dead man to live. And then he says, "Whom he called, them he also justified." That's Jesus Christ dying on the cross. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he completely put away the sins of every single child of God. Everyone. He didn't say it is finished for no reason. He didn't say it's almost finished. He, he didn't say I got it as far as I can get it, but now, now you're going to have to take it the next step. He said it is finished. He, would, he justified his children on the cross. And whom he justified, I love this, them he also glorified. <laughs> now, I'm sorry. I love you all, but you don't look glorified this morning. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I know, I know I can say that because I know I don't look glorified. I looked at myself in the mirror this morning. But in the mind and purpose of God, it is so certain as if it's already happened. Isn't that amazing? You know, if I said to you right now, uh, I went home tomorrow, or I went home this afternoon, you say, boy, you got your verb tenses mixed up, right? Well, I can't say that because something might hinder me. I might have a wreck. I might get sick. I might end up in the hospital. Who knows what might happen? But God can speak it as if it's already done. He can put it in the past tense when it's still a future occurrence. Then be glorified. And I want you to notice one other thing here before we move on. In each category... It's the very same number. There's not one lost. There's not one lost. 
he didn't grab a, you know, I used to have to carry buckets of water sometimes to up in the chicken houses or the different places. We were watering the chickens, doing others' tasks. And, and inevitably, especially if I filled the bucket up too far, but I'd, I'd lose some. I'd be walking along and I'd hit a, you know, I'd turn a certain way and some would splash out. A little more would splash out. I'd start out with a full bucket. I'd end up with about a three-quarter full bucket. God didn't lose one. God started out with a full bucket, and he ended with a full bucket. Praise God for that. See, so that's what this is talking about. What things is it that work together for good? It's all the eternal things that God has done for us. The, 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 the foreknowledge, the predestination, the calling, the justification, and the glorification. Now, again, why does it matter? What's the big deal about this? Isn't that something for theologians to argue about? No, child of God. It matters greatly. Let me tell you why. Look at the context of where we are. Do you remember what Paul was talking about in chapter 7? When he started out in chapter 7, Paul began to talk about all of the sin that he saw within him. The curse of sin that afflicted him. Do you have the curse of sin afflicting you? Does it bother you? You know, I'm so thankful that Paul wrote this. Because he started out talking about the law and how it's spiritual, but then he goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 7, That which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. And what he's saying here is this, I'm just in a constant turmoil. I'm in a constant conflict. And if you've been born again, child of God, you're going to be in a constant conflict. You're going to be struggling every single day with sin. Tell me the last day you, you spent in your life where you didn't commit a sin. And don't raise your hand because I know you're lying. <laughs> or else you just hadn't, hadn't noticed it. Child of God, we are cursed just like Paul. He's saying, I'm struggling with the sin curse that I see within me. And, and, I've, and I continually uh, deal with this to the point where ultimately in verse 24 he exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's struggling so much that he understands he is a wretch. Don't ever let him take that word wretch out of amazing grace. There was a movement some years ago to take that word out. And beloved, I tell you, the people that wanted to take that word out didn't understand just what a wretch they were. Depravity permeates every molecule of our being. And everything that I, you know, I've been struggling with this lately, thinking about it. And I really messed Brother Buddy Abernathy up. He told me one time, he said, boy, you messed me up talking about this. Think about the last good thing you did. The last time you gave charitably, the last time you gave to the church. Think about coming to church. Think about, did you really do it with a completely pure motive? Did you really do it? I remember a time when I was a kid, I was a kid, I say, I was driving, so I was 17, 18 years old. And I was with some friends, and uh, some of them are in church with me today, actually, down at Zion. And, uh, and we were walking along going to a movie, and this guy came up and handed us a card, said, I'm uh, deaf and mute, and trying to, you know, raise money, take donations to, for Christmas gifts. And everybody else just walked on, you know. I stopped. I pulled out 10 or $20. It's grown to 20 over the years. I don't know if it really was. I don't know what it was, honestly. might have been five, but it was some money. It was some money. And I gave it to him. And that was a good thing to do. That was a good thing to do. But I could not wait to get back with my friends about to bust the buttons off my shirt to tell them about it. <laughs> I told I was so glad. You know, I do things, and I hope you do things anonymously too, where, you know, you, people don't know about the good things you've done. But, but, but don't you just wish they did? 
You know, when I do something anonymously and I and nobody knows about it, I got to confess to you, child of God, there's something down within me. Now, I'm not going to tell them, but oh man, I wish they knew. <laughs> See, there's a pride, there's a there's a tainted motive in everything we do. That's why that's why Isaiah could write in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse six that all of our righteousnesses, all the good things that we do, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You know why? It's not because those things in and of themselves are bad. You can do good things with the wrong motive. You can do good things that are tainted by the motives within you that are always cursed with sin. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I'm struggling with the sin curse within me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then, in chapter 8, he begins to turn to the sin curse around him. The curse of sin that he sees around him. Notice in verse 18, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. He knows there's sufferings here. He knows that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until this point. Why do we have earthquakes? Why do we have disasters? Why do we have tragedies? It's not because God is sending them. It's because we live in a sin-cursed world. Why did the thorns come up when, when Adam sinned? It wasn't because God created a little thorn and decided that He was going to plant one here and then there. But because of the curse of sin, thorns began to come up and briars and brambles. And why, is it, why do you have to work a garden today? Why can't you just let it go? Why can't you just plant? the corn and let it go because we're living under the curse of sin. Why does my daughter have diabetes? Why did my daddy have Parkinson's? Why are all these troubles and trials going on? It may be something going on in your very life. Paul was under all kinds of troubles and trials. Go to the 11th chapter, I believe it is, of 2 Corinthians. You'll read about all the things that afflicted Paul. There was shipwreck. There was, he was run out of town. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was constantly in fear of his life. And all the sin curse around him was building upon him. And he was talking about the sin curse within him. It was just trouble and trials within him and trouble and trials around him. And he brings us right up to the brink here in verse 28. But then he suddenly says, okay, time out. You're never going to figure it all out, but God's causing all this, and he's working for your good. What an anticlimactic statement. See, that's not what Paul's doing. You know what Romans 8 and 28 is all about in 29 and 30? It's to remind us that in the midst of a sin-cursed world, we have a God that loves us with an everlasting love, and who before the foundation of the world, before we were born into this world, He loved us with that same everlasting love, and He purposed to save us from our sins. Uh, uh, Jeremiah tells us that, uh, that He said, Behold, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Beloved, we have a God that is on our side. Everybody else may be against you. You may lose everything you're involved in. You may lose every place in every place that you go, you may be like Job and even your own wife, your own spouse encourage you to go contrary to God, but you have a God that loves you. And that's what he's telling us here. Isn't that what we need to see in times of trouble? In the time, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah, you have to go read the record over there. Uzziah had been a leper for most of his, most of his life. Uzziah was, had gone into the temple there to burn incense. He'd gone over there and tried to usurp the authority of the priest. Due to his own sinful acts, he became a leper. God struck him with leprosy and had to live in a separate house the rest of his reign. And, 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 and what, a, 
tumultuous time that was. And then he died, and any time the king dies, any time the sovereign passes away, it's a time of great turmoil. You know what God showed Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died? He showed himself high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and he showed those seraphim and those cherubim singing around the throne, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. What do we need? What did, what did John? John was cast aside. He was in exile on the Isle of Patmos over there. He was in his probably in his 90s at that point, 80s for sure. And he was an elderly, elderly preacher over there that had been separated from his family and from his church and from all those that he held dear and put to work on this prison island. What did God show him? He didn't say, John, if you'll just have more faith, you'll just hold on a little stronger. You just pray through. You just let go. You just, you can have your best life now if you'll just exercise the name it and claim it faith. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. One day he was in the Lord's day, he was in the spirit and he heard a great voice behind him and he turned around and he looked and he saw his friend. He saw the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And even though it was his friend, and even though he was a disciple that, that Jesus loved, he called, he's called in the Gospel of John, he fell at his feet as dead. You know why? Because he needed to see a vision of God high and lifted up. And then, of course, you know the rest of that story. He opened up the heavens to give him visions of what's going on in heaven, not to scare him, by the way, like most people do today out of the book of Revelation, but to encourage him. You know what the theme of the book of Revelation is? We win in the end. <laughs> because Jesus Christ has already won the war. What do we need in the times of our greatest trial? I've been there. Have you been there? I've been there. I've been at times when I felt like I didn't have a friend in the world. Felt like I was a lone ranger, nobody else around. I didn't need to be told that, hey, look, buddy, you just don't understand it now, but all these bad things that are going on in your life, God sent them. And God's going to, you may not ever figure it out in this life. You probably not. You know, people talk about a secret will of God. Look, if it's secret and God's, if it's God's secret, you'll never know it. <laughs> I'm telling you. He, that's not what, that doesn't comfort me. It used, the only comfort I ever took out of it was that, well, okay, God's in control, but boy, it sure is puzzling here what's going on. Child of God, I got a better story for you than that. In those times of trouble, why is all of this happening? Why are all these troubles upon me? Well, we live in sin-cursed bodies on a sin-cursed world. But we have a God that has put away the sins of every single one of his children. And because he's done that, we can look to him for comfort. And in those times, instead of trying to philosophize about what's going on and figure out what the secret plan is, beloved, understand that the revealed plan of God is that this world is temporary. This world is temporary. You know, over in 2 Corinthians again, as we bring this to a close, Paul told us over in chapter 4, he says, beginning in verse 17, he says, for our light affliction. Now, wait a minute. Time out, Paul. You, as I said, you go over to the 11th chapter there of, uh, of 2 Corinthians, and you'll read about all of the struggles and the trials. He said of, of the Jews, five times received thy 40 stripes, save one. I wouldn't have had to have but one stripe, and I'd have probably been 
losing my mind. You say, I'm a baby when it comes to pain. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Uh, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Oh, my goodness. And it gets worse. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And he said, beside all this, those these things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I tell you what, a preacher can get down if he's not careful. Lord, I, all this stuff going on in my life, apart from the church, and I've still got to care for the church and having struggles there. But yet, Paul says, it's a light affliction. How can he say that? Did he say it because he said, well, I know they're all working together for my good. No, that's not what he said. What did he do? He didn't get his mind. See, the difference here is a horizontal view versus a vertical view. And what Romans 8.28 is teaching us is to get our eyes off the horizontal and get our eyes on the vertical. And that's what Paul says here. He says, our light affliction, how can you call it light, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen. Quit trying to figure out what's going on around you. Quit trying to figure out God's secret plan. Get your eyes off the things that are seen, but get them on the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, that is the view that we ought to have, and that is the view that Romans 8.28 is giving us. Why is it so important? Because that's the message that will help us the most. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Instead of despairing, instead of worrying, and getting that horizontal view under the sun that the Ecclesiastes writer had, where all is vexation and vanity of spirit, we can get our eyes vertically upon what God has done for us in eternity. And realize that even if we live to be 90 or 100 years old, it's just a blip on the radar of eternity. You think about 90 years, 80 years, 100 years, 110, 120 years. It's nothing compared to what God has in store for us in that eternal way. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. Do you, have, do you have a desire for Christ? You know, one of the things that we get accused of sometimes at Primitive Baptist is believing that you mean to tell me that there's those out there that desire Christ but can't go to heaven because they weren't chosen in Christ to the foundation of the world. You know what my response to that is? That's a fictional character. That's right. <laughs> that person does not exist. Every single person that has a tender heart desiring Christ is that's the strongest evidence there is that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Whom he did predestinate, he also called. Them he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? Here's the answer. If God be for us, who can be against us? Everybody may be against you. You may be dying today. You may be on death's door. But you know what the best day of your life will be? The day you close your eyes in death here and open them there. Isn't that glorious to think of? All those afflictions here in this life are like... In fact, he tells us in Romans 8, 18, that's the one that gives you comfort. I reckon, that means that's an accounting term. I'm counting that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. We're not going to get to heaven one day 
And there's going to be a ledger up there that says, okay, here's the sufferings and here's the glory. You know, because what's going to happen is there's not going to be anything on that suffering side. Right. <laughs> it's not even worthy to be compared. No matter what you experience here, God has purposed to save his people from their sins, and praise God he did it. And we can rest in that, though all the world rail against us. Appreciate your kind attention.